Hello, my fellow forgiven sinners. This is Pastor Connor on the Lutheran Library. Lutheran Library is a podcast of Transcendent Truth Media Network. Um, if I seem upset, it's because I am. It's because for the second time this week, my son muted my microphone. And so I recorded this episode with no sound. And so I have to say everything I said over again. I'm not mad. Don't worry. I'm not mad. Anyways, what are we doing today? Today... We oh before we yeah um before that um donate money to Transcendent Truth Media go to www.transcendenttruthmedia.com see our merch see our donation campaign see all that and none of that money goes to us it all goes to ad revenue and what is ad revenue you might ask well for I think it's the price of twenty dollars fifty dollars something like that um we can reach thousands more people at least that's what the people who run the algorithm say and I trust them don't you I do I don't know let's try it. Right. Uh, all you need to do, donate a dollar a month, two dollars a month, five dollars a month. Every bit helps. And, and, and every single dollar is being used to reach um, the ears, the hearts, the souls of sinners who need the consolation and comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you care about that, then donate. Put your money where your mouth is. Put your money rather where your heart is or rather where your money is. There is your heart, as the Catholics would say. And they're right. All right. Let's get started here. So, anyways, today we are covering uh, Luther's work on the German Mass and the Order of the Liturgy. But we're not just dealing with his uh, Mass, his uh, Deutsche Messe, but we are going to deal with his work um, surrounding it, his thoughts about it. How does Luther think about liturgy, and what can that tell us today about how we should think about liturgy, or perhaps how we should not think about liturgy? So without further ado, let's um, let's get into it. So liturgy, the idea of liturgy, is, um, as you know, of course, it is the work of the people. It is the thing that we do when we gather Right. And there is actually a concrete thing to this that has been going on for thousands of years. Right. What's the order of it? Do you know? Perhaps you don't. Um, but in, in most of our Lutheran churches, we will begin with confession and absolution. We'll move to the Kyrie. Then we will move to the uh, Gloria. Or if you're and I guess it's a little bit of in, in the last episode that I was recording, I mentioned that it's it's a bit of a controversy. Um, the song, This is the Feast. And this is a change. This is changing stuff. Uh, and uh, liturgy and changing stuff does not always work together. And why is that? Well, this has to do with the abuse that human beings naturally get into, is that we start doing something, we start liking something, something becomes used, we become used to something rather, it becomes a tradition in our midst, and then we try to enforce that upon other people. Right. And so um, this was one of Luther's main concerns. He wasn't he says here, right, this is the beginning of his work. He says, I had in no way intended to change. Right. The uh, divine service, the mass. I did not want to abrogate it. I did not want to change it at all. But rather his idea here is I wanted to put it into German. And however, he does change a few things. So there's um, Luther's original Latin service, which is basically a take on the medieval Roman mass. And then there's the Deutsche Messe, which has changed even a little bit more, right? And so as you go 
we start changing things and changing things and changing things minorly. And then we get into Lutherans coming to North America and we get what's called the common service. And the common service is based actually more so on the Anglican liturgies, both for divine service as well as for the daily offices, than it was for the Roman or the ancient patristic uh, liturgies, which the, the ancient patristic ones are, are really a lot more close or, or a lot closer to the Eastern liturgies and the Oriental liturgies than they are to the Roman mass, by the way. And so this is this this just shows you, um, or grows to show rather, that liturgy is going to change and develop wherever you are. No matter what church you're in, the liturgy you had is not the first liturgy practiced. And so what should then our be? What should then our be? Wow, that's an interesting thing to say. What then should be our way of thinking about liturgy? What should be our main concerns? Well, for Luther, he states that he's got really two concerns here. His main concerns are, on one hand, Christian liberty. And this is not what I think our primary one should be, but in his context, it makes sense. Because in his context, again, the Roman church was saying, this is the liturgy, this is what you and everyone else needs to do, and they can't differ from it at all. So they had taken what was tradition, what Luther says is adiaphora, it's a thing indifferent, neither commanded by God nor forbidden by God, and they were acting as if it was divine law enforcing it upon everyone. Everyone has to do, they said, the same liturgy. You have to worship in the same way. You have to pray the same way. You have to think the same way. You have to do everything the same. Speak the same language, no, no matter whether you know Latin or not, right? And so Luther says, no, I'm not going to do that because I have the Christian liberty to put the Mass into German, to do the Deutsche Messe, right? Now, on the other hand, his secondary concern is using that Christian liberty properly. Because as he says, and as we now know in our context, Christian liberty almost 900% of the time, which by the way is over 100% of the time, that means all the time, more than all the time, freedom and Christian liberty is abused, right? So as, you know, as Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's in John 8. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, you have been set free for the sake of being free. That means to do what is right. You are free for the good. You are not free to do what's wrong. You're not free to do what pleases you or tickles your ear or entertains you, right? You're not free to, for example, replace the Gloria with, um, or, or even to replace the whole liturgy with this uh, kind of uh, free contemporary worship mess thing that the evangelicals are doing. And I won't name what synods have, you know, repeatedly fallen into this mistake, but you probably already know who they are. Now, let me just give you an example of how this kind of twofold uh, concern for Christian freedom and also insistence that Christian freedom is used properly, how that all works together. So this is the LBW. This is what we use at St. Matthew's Lutheran Church. This is probably, my guess, what most Calc, um, NALC, LCMC churches are using, if they're still even using a physical service book. Um, and this, interestingly, what is this, right? This is This was a joint um, commission project together from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And I don't know if it was the ELCA and ELCIC or what became the ELCA and ELCIC, being the ALC and LCA. I'm giving you alphabet soup. I know. I'm sorry. Um, and so this is the common root uh, of the two successor service books or hymnals, as someone call it, um, which is the Missouri Synod LSB and the ELCA and ELCIC ELW. Those are the two service books that came from this. Some people would say the LCMS LSB is not a successor of the LBW, but it's a successor of the Lutheran worship um, that they went when they abandoned this project. That's not really true, but we can have an episode on that if we need to somewhere else.
But so this is this is just one of the examples here in the LBW and in the Missouri, the current Missouri Student Service book and the ELCA ELW, most things have more than one option. And so they give you Christian freedom. But how are you to use that Christian freedom? Let me give you an example. The, the, the standard liturgy for a Western Christian begins confession and absolution, Kyrie, um, Gloria, Gloria in excelsis. Let me read to you the Gloria in excelsis. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now, so you can see there, it's a doctrinally substantial, rich, Trinitarian hymn. It gets at the core of what's in the three ecumenical creeds, really. It's, you know, you, and, and it praises and glorifies God for these things, for his triune glory, his mystery, his saving redemption of us, his buying us, purchasing us from our sins, the advocacy of the Holy Spirit, together three persons, one God, the Trinity, right? That's what it's about. Now, um... Now, all, all churches that use the LBW, LSB, or ELW also have this option. This is called, this is the feast. And this is controversial. I'll tell you why, right? Is This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia. Worthy is Christ the Lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free from the to be people of God. This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Power, riches, wisdom, and strength, and honor, and blessing, and glory are his. This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Sing with all the people of God and join in the hymn of all creation. Blessing and honor and glory and might be to God and to the Lamb forever. Amen. This is the feast of victory, God, so on and so forth. For the Lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Alleluia. This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. So obviously that chorus is going to annoy some people, you know, but um, I, I do, I like this one. I like this one. I don't, I, I wouldn't permanently replace the Gloria and Excelsis with it. At St. Matthew's, I will tell you what we do. What is my bias, I guess, obviously. Well, not personal bias, but what I, I don't mind it. I, I, I'm not upset about it, right? Probably wouldn't be my choice, but I think it's kind of nice is that we at St. Matthew's for the majority of the year use the Gloria and Excelsis in the season of Easter. We use this as the feast, right? Now I know that there's churches who alternate every second week. I don't think that's I don't think that's useful. And this gets into the Christian freedom thing. Are they free to alternate every week? Yes. Um, but does alternating the two things every week kind of create a confusion? Um, hamper your ability to memorize the liturgy, especially for um, younger people who maybe you know whatever. Right. Yes, it, it is going to hamper that. And, and so but we see this also, you know, um, what, what ends up happening is in the abuse of Christian freedom, you see all these pastors in synods, which I won't name, replacing the Gloria with, I don't know, some kind of Hillsong Kobo uh, song of praise or whatever. And they'll replace the Gloria with some kind of, I don't know, prayer for mercy. And then they'll replace the confession and absolution with something that they just made up. Right. And is that. That, I mean, they're free to do that. They have Christian liberty to do that. They're not going to hell. That's, they didn't break a law of God or anything. Um, but is that useful? Is that productive? Is that conducive to the unity of the church? 
in the songs we sing and the prayers we pray, is that conducive to people memorizing a liturgy that they can take with them out of church into everyday life? No, not at all. For example, um, if you do that, you might memorize parts of a contemporary worship song, which is nowhere near as doctrinally substantial and rich as the glory in excelsis or this is the feast, right? Um, you won't be able to memorize that. Now, in my home, right, be, and, and others, like all the Lutheran homes that I know, um, that use a standard liturgy week by week, not alternating the options. However, there are options for almost everything in here. Um, one or two, there's an option for the offertory. There's two options for Thanksgiving, uh, sorry, the uh, post-community canticle. There's two options for the, um, well, for most things, right? But if, if you're alternating them, it's going to hamper your ability to memorize that. It's going to hamper the unity of the church in its prayer, in its, in its praise. But if you use the one thing constantly, or at least the majority of the time, what you will end up with is a people who have memorized the divine service front to back and can sing that without the books. And I always, one of the things that makes me laugh is I hear these, you know, the synods I won't name, complaining about, um, moving from the service book to the screen projector and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know, if you actually use the same liturgy, you don't need either. You, you actually don't because the people are the service book. The people are the hymnal. The people are the liturgy. And that's when it actually becomes liturgy. It becomes the work of the people when the people memorize and internalize the songs they sing and the prayers that they pray. That is when the liturgy, as it's supposed to, flows out of the people rather than is read by or given to the people, right? And so the people give the people the songs, not a book that they bought from Concordia or Fortress Press, but the people, right? And so who, how do you first receive the gospel, right? It, 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 ideally, it's not from a store. It's not from, but it's from a person, right? You don't go and buy a Bible. You first hear about the Bible. You first hear about Christ, in the same way, the liturgy should function in that way. So now that I'm done ranting, let's really get into Luther's thoughts some more here. So as he's saying, <clears throat> he's, his intention is not in any way or at all to change or to abrogate um, this Roman mass, well, though he does it a little bit, right? So I don't know why he's saying that. He's, he's not really being truthful here. But as he says, um, one of his main concerns is the language. And contrary to popular Lutheran belief and understanding, Luther's not, like his main concern is not just getting it into the common language of the people. But as he says himself, he is not one of these people who wants to focus only on one language. But he says something extremely counterintuitive to us, which is that he wants to not only retain Latin, but to add also Greek and Hebrew if he could, if he could convince churches to do this. And um, why do you think that is? You're not going to get the answer right. His answer, his reason for wanting this, he says, for the kids. As he says, <clears throat> I want to, I want, he says, sorry, for no, for under no circumstance would I want to discontinue the service in the Latin language because of the young people. He says, because the young people, end quote, are my primary concern. 
for the kids. Now, think about how we think about kids in the divine service in the modern West. Well, um, you're likely thinking, dumb it down, make it stupid, make it easy, bring it to our level, right? So what you're thinking, I did, probably, my guess is the same thing I'm thinking, is people are saying, don't preach to... Um, um, difficultly for them to understand um don't have any latin don't have any german don't have any hebrew obviously right make it as simple as possible right and they even in most churches they they have them taken out of the divine service because they don't think they can understand it and they hide them in the basement dungeon or in the fellowship hall where they tell them things that are completely bereft of any theological substance or significance because substance and significance is too hard for them to understand this is what they say and yet Luther's here, like, for the sake of the kids, add Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Make it harder. Why? For the sake of educating them. And, and, and this gets at the, the whole core of what is the purpose of liturgy. Well, liturgy is for the sake of enculturating and passing things on. It's for the sake of teaching, right? For the sake of teaching. And yet in the modern West, we don't believe that at all. In the modern West, the liturgy, the sermon, and everything we do is said right, to be meeting us where we are, and that no one actually lives this out, and thank God that nobody actually lives this out, because if they did, that means that nothing would actually be said at all in the liturgy, and why do I say that? Well, when you're born, what do you know about the liturgy? Nothing. What do you know about Christ? Nothing. What do you know about the Bible? Nothing. If someone walks in off the street who's never heard about these things, what do they know? Nothing. And so if we're, if the idea is meeting people where they are, you always have to go to the lowest common denominator, which means you have to say nothing. And then God people don't do that. And yet they continue to say this as if, it's, as if it's true, but it's not true. Nothing ever meets anybody where they are because then nobody would be able to say anything at all. We'd be born knowing nothing and we'd die knowing nothing. And thank God that's not how things are, right? The way that things are, or the way that things really should be, is we enter the liturgy to be met where we are for the sake of being raised above that, right? So, you know, I'm not meeting people where they are in the liturgy. I'm bringing them to where they should be. I'm not meeting people where they are in the sermon. I'm bringing them to where they should be through the sermon, right? It's for the sake of educating, right? So if someone doesn't know anything, the goal of the liturgy, the goal of the sermon, the goal of the Bible study is not to keep them knowing nothing, but to teach them something, right? And so this is what Luther's saying. For the sake of the kids, we should be using Latin to teach it to them. We should be using Greek and Hebrew to teach it to them, to bring them from where they are to where they should be, right? He says, I would rather train the young and not so young who could also be witnesses to Christ in foreign lands and be able to converse with people there. And so this is his concern for the learning of languages. I guess it's a little funny to me. Um, but anyways... He says the spirit of basically um, all of this has to do with, I guess, the plurality of languages in the world that you often hear Roman Catholics defend the use of Latin because it's one of the three languages written on the cross. And so it's holy, they would say. But Luther's reasoning is the Holy Spirit at Pentecost revealed the gospel in every language. And so the mass should, by definition, be a, because it comes from Pentecost, should be a service done in the spirit of Pentecost. And that means a, a service done in a plurality and a multiplicity of languages and tongues so that the Holy Spirit can, again, make true that Pentecost unbreaking 
of the gospel into every tongue, every tribe, every nation. It's an interesting idea. It's not one that we would ever find in a Lutheran church, though, nor even in a Roman Catholic church. Is At best, you will find Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, but that's it. Um, however, if you go to, for example, a Coptic mass, we have a Coptic congregation that meets in my church building, and I always go to their Coptic mass. They're actually doing the divine service in four languages, Greek, English, Coptic, Arabic, every single service, four languages. They, they are doing what Luther is saying, not us, not the Roman Catholics, but the Orthodox. And you'll find, actually, if you go and you read a lot of Luther, some of the things he says are like, this is just fulfilled in the Orthodox Church. But other things he says are, honestly, to be honest with you, so weird and off-putting that I'd have to say this is fulfilled in some kind of crazy schismatic um, house church movement like the Vineyard, uh, whatever it's called, right? And, and for example, this is one of those. He says, um, the truly evangelical order should not happen publicly on the town square for all sorts of people. But those who seriously want to be Christians and who profess the gospel with hand and mouth should sign in with their names, right? And meet alone in a house to pray, to read, to baptize, to receive the sacrament, and to do other Christian works. Now, at least he is mentioning the sacraments here. But his idea is that you want to strip the public nature of the church and make it into small groups, make it into house churches. And my question to Luther is, why? Why? Why at all? There is no defense for this. He doesn't even give a reason for this. He just says the serious Christians would want to do this. They'd want to get rid of the public corporate church institution and just have house churches. And again, my question is, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you say that? What is your reason for that? And this is something that we see actually fulfilled later in the Lutheran pietistic movement, where they said the divine service isn't really enough. We need to be meeting privately in homes and conventicles, having Bible studies in this private, um, de-corporate, uh, de-unified manner. And it, it just became a mess. And it, it all it really was doing was denying the sufficiency of Christ's institution and the divine service that was given to us in Scripture. So... I'm not going to stand with Luther on this one, but that is his opinion. And that's why I, I began this by saying, you know, in this episode, we are not only looking at Luther's Deutsche Messe, his liturgy, but we're looking at his ideas on liturgy and what they can tell us about what we should believe and what we should not. And this is one of the things we 100% should not believe that Luther did believe, which is that not only that house churches are good, they're not good. But that we should do them. If we are serious Christians, we would do them. That's false. The serious Christian, like a sheep, knows it cannot exist alone. It cannot exist. Sheep do not live in small flocks on purpose, right? That we are to be in the corporate body with people of all shapes, all sizes, all ages, all stripes and colors and tribes and forms. Uh, people who are not like us, right? Um, and mind you, this was a this was a time that he's writing in when churches are everywhere, when there's a church on every single street corner, because people didn't have cars, right? People didn't drive a half an hour to an hour to go to the congregation of their choosing. You went to the church that was near you, right? You went to the church that was walkable. You had parish congregations. And so uh, there, is, there really is no, no defensible. He doesn't even bother to give a reason for this. Right. Actually, one one thing he does kind of say is in these smaller communities, 
This is one of his ideas. People could be better known, better reproved, better corrected, excluded, or communicated. Basically, like pastoral care and the unity of the church would become easier. And that's true. I'm not going to bother disagreeing with him, except for the fact that this is already possible in a local congregation of probably under 100 people. As long as you don't break 100 people, this is not going to be a problem. Even 150 people, it's not going to be a problem. Um, it, it becomes a problem when you start getting up above 150 and your church becomes functionally unmanageable. And um, no matter how many staff you add to that congregation, you're going to miss the visitors coming in. You're not going to be able to fence the table properly. You're not going to be able to properly provide spiritual pastoral care for them. No offense to pastors who have big congregations, but I mean, it's just a fact. And you know it. Uh, you know that there's people walking in those doors who you've never met. You don't know what they believe. Um, you don't know what they're doing in their, their lives. You don't know what they're struggling with. You don't know their burdens. So. Luther has a point here, but the solution is not house churches and small groups. The solution is split and plant, split and plant. Um, that's it, right? So as long as, but churches will never do this because the church is all about money. And so um, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> the people who run churches, at least, the focus is almost always money. And so um, if you have a big church that's like 300 or 500, it's because something is happening. It's usually an overly charismatic pastor to be honest with you. Um, and so the church keeps growing because of the pastor and people don't want to split and split and plant because the pastor at the other church is not going to be as charismatic. No one will want to go to that church because um, the pastor for them or church for them is about going and seeing this extremely charismatic pastor and hearing these super interesting things. And so a lot of the, and you see this now in society where people don't have parish church models unless they're Catholic, but they rather have a church that they drive to of their preference, right? And now the Catholics have the better model here with the parish church model. It, it prevents this from happening. And yet, and yet us Protestants, our understanding of church is consumeristic. It's like, where is the place I would rather be? Not the place near me, not my local parish church. I'm um, not even the place that's most biblical, but just simply the place I would rather be for whatever reason. I will drive there. And this is what cars have done. This is what consumeristic culture has done. This is what individualism has done. And this is spurred on by the fact that pastors are staying at congregations far longer than they ought to. If you cycle the pastor through, right, you will, first of all, if you have this really great pastor, really great, whatever that means, um, who manages to grow churches like nuts, there's maybe something wrong with him. But whatever that, you know, whatever reason that is, whether he's, not preaching the gospel properly, or he's just super great at what he does, or he's super charismatic, whatever. He's super handsome, let's say. Um, this handsome pastor will be shared around um, the synod or the diocese, whatever it is, right? And so all of the congregations will benefit in number and attendance when he is there. And then there will be an ebb and a flow, if you will, right? And also, churches will not base their identities and um, corporate basically spirit around following this man people don't people shouldn't come to church for the pastor they should come to church for word and sacrament and the, the pastor needs to be rightly understood as an exchangeable interchangeable thing it doesn't matter who is there in the vestments it matters that the vestments are there if you will it matters that the pastoral office is there that word and sacrament are there being preached rightly and administered according to the word that's it right so and, and really this this so if you are a pastor listening to this and you've been at your congregation too long, and you you should know, you should know that, because I know 
I know pastors who are at the same congregation like 17 years. Man, stop, stop, stop. Go somewhere else. Somewhere else needs you. Now, this is getting exceedingly harder to do now in our culture because the Lutheran church is dying where we live. It's dying. Um, we don't have enough pastors. And so there's this heartbreaking, heart-wrenching reality that if we as a pastor have been somewhere um, seven years, eight years, 10 years, and it's time to move on, if we, we know that if we move on, our congregation is going to be vacant. That's a fact, right? And so it becomes so much harder for us to do. And also when in certain synods, I won't name them, but um, where there are so many pastors in the synod who aren't even Lutheran, or for non-Lutherans who aren't even, you know, what that what that church body is supposed to believe, you know that that church you leave might end up with a heterodox pastor. You don't know what you're um, going, what state you're going to be leaving them in. Right? You don't know what your leaving is going to do, and and more often than not, in our con- current situation, it's going to be uh, some kind of detrimental negative effect upon them. And so there is this really heart wrenching drive and motivation to stay where you are for the sake of your people. And that's honorable. And I understand that, but I de- in an ideal situation where that's not the case, we should be rotating our pastors, switching out our pastors so that the church doesn't become um, stuck together. And we should be splitting and planting so that we are able to know, to reprove, to correct, to administer um, church discipline properly. Right? So he says, Here in this house church model, that's how we got here, by the way, just to remind you, um, there would be no elaborate or excessive singing. Here, one could practice a belief and beautiful order for baptism and the sacrament and center everything on word, prayer, and love. Now, that's a good idea, but again, um, you don't have to do this in a house church. You can do this in a smaller congregation under 150 people. Here, one would have a good short catechism on the creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. You can do this in a normal congregation, Luther. Why don't you understand that? And see, basically, he says, basically, if one had the kind of people and persons who seriously wanted to be Christians, and this language is dangerous, right? Because what's the implication there? Anyone who's not interested in this house, household model, anyone who is content with the normative institution of institutional congregations and communities is not a serious Christian and is not really seeking Christ with all that they have. And this was the same charge that the pietists brought upon brought upon normal Lutherans, normal Christians, is that, oh, you lukewarm Christians, you're just, uh, you find this uh, divine service, this mass sufficiency, so you go here and you do this rote ritual of the liturgy and you get nothing out of it and you don't really love Christ, you're not a real Christian. Um, it's not true, right? Real Christianity is found in the divine service. It's not found in small groups. It's not found in Bible studies, right? It's not. Um, and I was just talking to um, a um, a ministerial candidate the other day, and I was asking him as we were going through some material, and I was helping him with it, is on the issue of Bible study, I was like, well, well, first we started with small groups. I said, do small groups work? And first of all, what does it mean they work, right? And basically, I helped them get to the point where uh, you know that something works in the sake of ministry if it creates comfort and consolation and an assurance in your salvation, a deeper one, and um, creates maturity in Christ and spurs you on to love your neighbor. That's it, right? And he said, it works sometimes. And so I said, so therefore, small groups are spotty, right? And he said, yeah, I guess they're, they're spotty. Um, their effectiveness is spotty. Then I said, okay, what about what about Bible studies? He said, 
Yeah, sometimes. I said, okay, so Bible study is spotty. But is the divine service spotty? No, it always works, right? And so um, what pietism did and what Luther is talking about here, I mean, Luther's still not going that far, though, because as he's saying in these house churches, what's happening there? It's not just the word being, he doesn't say preaching explicitly. So I don't know if he's thinking more of a Bible study, but he's saying word, prayer, sacraments, right? And um, But really, it's the full liturgy sung, prayed in the unity of the church in this specific way that we've been doing for 2,000 years. And, and, and the way that they were doing it in the Jewish synagogues, as well as the temple, that's where, that's the two things that developed into the Christian liturgy, by the way, is the synagogue synagogal liturgy and the temple liturgy brought together. Liturgy of the uh, word, liturgy of the altar brought together into the divine service. That's it, right? And so that that really is the thing that is guaranteed to always work. Um, nothing else is. And so um, pietism really, it's, and this, you know, Pastor Roland would disagree with me, but it was founded upon a denial of the sufficiency of Christ's institution and the divine service, which is stupid. That's all it is, right? It is a denial of what is so obviously true. The proof is in the pudding. Let me give it to you this way. Um, and this will upset some of you, but this is a fact. How often do Lutherans come to church on average now across synods? Once a week, maybe. Once a week, maybe. And we know this. How many people are at divine service? How many people are at your Bible studies? For me, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you my numbers. But they're not very good right now. But um, for Bible studies, it's even worse. For everybody, I know I know a pastor, won't name him, but he, his congregation is hundreds of people, and he gets like five people for Bible study. That's it. That's ridiculous. And uh, if I were to say to you, what if you had what what if throughout the week instead of having these things like prayer service blah 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 where it's not really a lutheran prayer service anyway it's just you whispering sweet nothings um and that's not that's not lutheran prayer that's that's just evangelicalism but um is is what if you were to replace all of these things with lutheran patristic universally catholic and orthodox tradition what if you were to bring back daily divine service what if you were to bring back um the daily offices what if you were better than the daily offices, again, daily divine service, what if you were to actually root your Christian ministry, not in the word over and against the sacraments, but in word and sacrament? What if you were to drill into your people the fact that coming to receive the Eucharist is the pinnacle and the summit of the whole Christian experience? What if you were to root them and ground them in understanding that private confession and absolution is um, necessary because of how sinful and needful we are, that we have this evangelical necessity to hear constantly the forgiveness of our sins? What if your people understood that all of these things are found in the divine service, the teaching of the word in its highest, best form, prayer in its highest, best form, the sacrament in its only form? Right when when confession and an absolution in its highest and best perfect form that all of these things are perfectly given to us in the divine service as we've received it. What if they knew that? What if you offered it every single day? Let me tell you what is um, attendance at church. Growth of church is created by the divine service. The divine service is not created by members of the church, but the members of the church are created by the divine service. That's a fact, right? Word and sacrament creates this. Right. That, for example, just to, and to go back to the example I was going to give you that I know is going to upset some of you. Um, 
I I know all of the Lutheran churches in the area. They are all decimated num numerically. We're all decimated. That's why I said Lutheranism is dying, right, in this context. Now, go to a church that ha still has daily divine service, right? It could be Orthodox, could be Catholic. Let me just think of one random Catholic parish here. It's not even the biggest one. It's not the most popular one. On a Monday morning, they have over double my Sunday morning attendance. On a Tuesday morning, same thing. Wednesday morning, same thing. Thursday morning, same thing. Friday morning, same thing. What's going on, guys? What is what is what is stopping us? And so here's my here's my critique against Luther's thoughts here on this um, private house church model, whatever this pietist thing that he's kind of foreshadowing. This we've seen that that doesn't work. We've seen that's not been done for a long time. But what we know in its short time of existence is that it is proven to kill churches. Having one divine service a week and Bible study midweek, maybe a prayer meeting midweek, is proven to kill churches. I know because that's what it's done universally over this country, over the U.S., over everywhere it's been done. Daily divine service has only been tried and true and proven over the course of 2,000 years to build, sustain, and grow the church here on this earth. So what what really what really are we getting at? Well, the center of the Christian life is the divine service. It is the mass. So we're going to stop it here. And then when we continue, probably next week, I think, we'll continue actually with, well, not, we're going to get there eventually, his actual, the Deutsche Messe, the, the, the German mass, and then his thoughts on it. But we're just beginning here to still break open his idea of liturgy. So immediately after this, Luther starts talking about liturgy as catechism, liturgy as a way to teach the faith. So we'll get there. But um, I'll just close with this. And um, as he says, just, just ending this part, um, he says, in the meanwhile, until we can get to this pietistic house church model, these... Orders of service must suffice. Besides preaching, he says, I shall help to encourage such public liturgy, which he does not think ideal, but is subpar, but will suffice for the time, for the people to train the young people and to call and attract others to faith until they are Christians who earnestly understand the word and join together and conduct themselves as Christian. This kind of liturgy is necessary so that no sect arises from public worship as if simply devised for the service out of my own head. Right. Well, we Germans are rough, rude and reckless people with whom it is hard to do anything except in cases of dire need. And he, you know, he's always pessimistic, this guy. But basically what, what his idea is, is and that's when he breaks into the idea of liturgy as catechism. And this is what I was I was talking about just a little bit earlier is the liturgy is not for the sake of meeting you where you are, but of bringing you from where you are to where you should be. The liturgy itself is catechism. The liturgy itself is theology. The liturgy itself is teaching. The liturgy is, well, the liturgy is everything the Christian needs. It is everything the Christian needs, right? They're in the divine service, and we're going to walk through it next week as we continue through this uh, work of Luther. You have there um, the name of God. You have the confession of sin. You have the glorifying and praising of God. You have prayer. You have song. You have sung worship. You have the sacraments. You have the word read and preached. You have the offering. You have love actually in action with the offering of finances and whatever it, whatever it else it is for the sick, for the poor, for the needy. You have literally the whole Christian life encapsulated in what is now like this one hour on Sunday morning. That right there is a... Is a um, that, that is the whole Christian life. So let's end with that. Uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God bless you, preserve you, um, and keep you in his peace. Amen.